invite you to take your scriptures and turn back to that Mark chapter 15 passage. We're also, if you want to hold your finger there, we're going to be in Psalm 22 today. Jesus spoke four Aramaic words. Hebrew was the national language, but in Jesus' day, the modern vernacular was a form of Hebrew, which is Aramaic. At the most climactic moment of his life, he quoted Psalm 22 and verse 1. My God, my God, why, has you, why have you forsaken me? Back then, they didn't have any chapter divisions or verse divisions or numbers uh, in their Bibles. So if you wanted to refer to a book in the Bible or a chapter, then you would just quote the first words of it. It was a technique called remez. And so instead of quoting the whole chapter, you would just say the first few verses of it, and everybody would know that you are alluding to the whole thing. Jesus does that on the cross. He quotes the first verse of Psalm 22, as I said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when he does that, what he's saying is to all those who hear him, including everyone here this morning, that the whole psalm is about me. The psalm reveals what I'm here to do right now as I'm dying on this cross. See, it may be the most important quote from Scripture that Jesus ever made. It may be the most important thing that he says about who he is and what he did. So if we want to know something about the most important person in all of history and we want to know how he would have us to live in this world, we have to understand what Psalm 22 is all about. Mark's gospel records for us that Jesus only says one sentence from the cross. Now, if you read all the other Gospels, you'll know, and there have been books written on it, there are seven things altogether that Jesus says from the cross. For Mark, though, he only records one of them, and that's the one I've just quoted for you. He cries it loudly. In fact, the Bible says in that Mark 15 passage that he cries out loudly twice on the cross. But the second one, the words are not added, only the first. Why does Mark go out of his way to do that? Because here's what he wants us to do this morning, and here's my purpose for you and I. He wants us to see and feel, and he wants us to understand what it meant for Jesus to be forsaken by God for our sin. The word forsaken, it's a terrible word, isn't it? Synonyms include abandon, leave behind, desert, to disown, rejected, leave high and dry, turn one's back on someone, wash your hands of them, spurn them. Those are very graphic and image-laden words, are they not? It's Miss Havisham being left at the altar and never getting over it in Charles Dickens' classic, Great Expectations. It's every person who has ever been divorced because their spouse found someone else. It's every child that's ever been disowned by their parents because they did not meet up their expectations. It's Joseph in the Bible being sold into slavery by his brothers. It's Elijah feeling that everyone in the nation had abandoned him so that he had to stand on Mount Carmel and face the prophets of Baal alone. It's the Apostle Paul being abandoned by his closest friends and partners in the gospel as he stands at his last stand in his trial before Caesar, knowing his life was ending shortly. Forsaken. 
fiance forsaken, spouse forsaken, parent forsaken, sibling forsaken, nationally forsaken, friend forsaken. Perhaps you felt some of those in your own life. But for Jesus, forsaken had a whole new meaning. See, he was forsaken on the way to the cross, just like you and I have been forsaken. He was betrayed by Judas, and he was denied by Peter. All the disciples that he had spent three years with abandoned him and didn't even show up other than John at the cross. See, he knows what friend forsakenness is all about. He knows national forsakenness because the religious leaders and the Jews at large that were there that day, they turned their back on Jesus and rejected him. His own people did that. But it goes well beyond that because this is a different kind of forsaken. When he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, to be forsaken by Judas or Peter or the disciples or his own people is one thing, as grievous as that is. But it goes to a completely different level when you are God forsaken. See, what was that like for Jesus? That's what Mark wants you and I to contemplate. When Jesus says, my God, my God, what was going on in his heart and his mind? You see, he is using what's called in grammar a double vocative. He said it at Martha's house the day in Luke 10 where he said, Martha, Martha, you're cumbered about with much serving. See, he said it, Simon, Simon. See, he, he had used it in his life himself because he knew when you, you use someone's name twice in a row, you were saying something so emphatic because you wanted to get their attention. You didn't want them to miss something vital. The only time that God's name is used in that sense is by Jesus as he quotes this psalm. My God, my God. Now see, in the text, in Psalm 22, if you're flipping there back and forth with me, in Psalm 22 and verse 2 and 22 and verse 10, he calls my God out in singular form. See, that's one thing. But to use it two times in a row... And then the Bible says that in Mark's gospel, he cried with a loud voice, and the word loud means mega. It's the word we get megaphone from. You have to recognize that when Jesus is dying on the cross, he is slowly being asphyxiated. His feet have been nailed to the cross. He is naked on the cross, and he's pushing up, holding on to the nails that nail his hands through his wrist to the cross, pushing off a little seat in Latin called the sedile, and he pushes up as often as he can get the strength, but most likely his bones are out of joint, which is a quote from Psalm 22. He pushes up, why? Because he can't breathe. And so on the cross, Jesus says little terse statements of only a few words because it's all the air that he can manage to get to speak. It was an effort to say anything on the cross, especially in the agony that he was facing. So when he says the whole verse, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? It was a lot of emotion. It was a lot of work to do what he was doing. And in it, he brings up this text that the very first verse has two why questions. And isn't that you and I? When you face suffering and trials and difficulty, when trouble comes your way of a magnitude that you never thought that you would experience, isn't the first thing that comes to your mind why? Why would this happen to me? Why is this going on in my life? And so Jesus says that. Why? Why have you forsaken me? And then he says, why are you, and here's the key text, why are you so far from saving me? See, he's telling you what he means when he says forsaken. 
See, Jesus feels that God is far from him. There's a distance between him and his father. In fact, it's so important to him and so devastating to him that he says it three times in Psalm 22. Verse 1, verse 11, and verse 19. He keeps telling God, God, I'm on the cross. Be not far from me. See, he feels the distance. Trouble is near, but God is far. Is that where you are this morning? See, God, you, here's all my problems. I come to church, God. Listen, what, see what I'm going through? God, where are you? God seems so distant. He seems so far away. You know what? I looked up the little phrase, be not far from me in the rest of the Psalms. And you know what happens in it? In verse ch chapter 22, Psalms, every time he uses it in verse 11 and verse 19, he also has the word help me in it. Three other uses in the Psalms, 35, 38, 71. He says, oh God, be not far from me. And then he ends up at the end of the verse saying, please help me, help me. Here's why. Because when you read the Psalms and their uses of the little phrase that Jesus alludes to, be not far from me, it's not just, hear me, it's not just about God being distant. God, if you could come close, it is that. But it's come close so you can help me. See, it's not just about distance, it's about deeds. He wants God to look on him, come to him, and help him. We would say today when someone, we say, hey, come over and give me a hand, right? So they're standing there, and, you, and we tell them what? Are you just going to stand there? Do something. Pick up something. Don't just stand there. It's not just that, see, it's not the psalmist, it's Jesus' cry. Hey, he wants God to come close. God, you're not here. You need to be here. And then it's more than that. Be here and act. Act in my situation. It's, can I tell you, the illustration, I think, perfectly, is Mary and Martha. Jesus shows up late in John 11 for the funeral of their brother Lazarus. And he's too late. He's four days late. And so Mary and Martha, both at different times, they meet Jesus and they come to him and they say the same exact phrase because they've been talking about the same thing for four days. I thought you cared, Jesus. I thought you loved me. If you would have loved me, right, you would have been here. And so they say, Jesus, if you would have been here, presence. See, it hurts. The distant hurt. See, you should have been here, not way over there when my brother was dying, right here. See, I don't like the distance, but here's what they said, and here's why you should have been close. Because if you would have been here, distance, my brother wouldn't have died, deed. See, you could have prevented it. You have miraculous power. You could have stopped. Have you ever said that? God, I want you, please, you need to be here today. You need to do something. Do something in my marriage. God, why not? Where are you? My marriage is falling apart. You can do something to put it back together. You can turn my husband's heart. You can turn my wife's heart around. You can do that. Why don't you come and help? God, I need your help in my hurt. No one knows the loneliness I face. No one knows the staggering emotional rejection that I feel right now in my circumstances. Why don't you do something? I need your help in my cancer. I need your help Lord, I'm constantly being defeated by the sin in my life as a Christian. See, where are you? Mary and Martha vocalized it. And so do we, don't we? In fact, in his humanity, even as the God-man, Jesus says, why? 
Why are you so distant? See, he knows this morning. He knows what it's like to be in the dark. He knows what it's like when God is distant. He knows what it's like when God is not doing what he in his heart would like him to do. But it's even further than that. You notice in the text what Jesus does not cry. He does not say, my hands, my hands. He does not say, my head, my head, or my feet, my feet. You know, he has been flogged, which was a horrible ordeal that most people would die from. He had been beaten by the soldiers and spit on, crown of thorns, rods in his head, all of that. He had experienced all kind of physical suffering, but notice in the text, he never says a word. He's never said anything, all the physical suffering. He doesn't even say, my friends, my friends, even though all of his friends had denied, betrayed, and rejected him. Up until now, he's been calm, cool, and collected. He hasn't complained. He hasn't uttered a word in all of the agony that he has faced. But this time he does. Because there's something more to being forsaken for Jesus than the physical or psychological agony. This is infinitely spiritual. You have to understand, when Jesus says those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He has been infinitely close to God the Father from all of eternity. He has never, ever experienced distance. He has never been far from God. Never. No friend has ever been as close to their best friend like this. No husband has ever been close to their wife like this. No child has ever been or had a love relationship with their parents like this. That's why he screams it. That's why Mark says he cries with a loud voice. It is why Jesus chose to use a lot of oxygen and air to scream this verse out. Because the agony of being forsaken by God was something that no one else could understand but him. He was alone in a way that you and I could never, ever even fathom about being alone. It is cosmic distance. It is total helplessness. And he did it for you and for me. See, he's taking our judgment day. Our darkness that we deserve, our distance, our death, that's what he's taking. Jesus took our farness so he could give us his nearness. So Ephesians 2.13 reads, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been made near or brought near by the blood of Christ. You see, you and I as sinners cannot span the distance between us and God by our deeds. It's only by His. The help that you and I need that the psalmist cries out for to have peace with God does not come from your morality. You cannot get close to God and be with him forever because of your morality, your righteousness, your religiosity, your offerings, your good works. That's not how closeness is accomplished. It says this in Ephesians 2.13. It was by his blood. By his blood he brought you near. You can't come near on your own. See, the temple was set up in stages. There were outer courts. There were inner courts. There was the holy place, 
And then behind the final wall was the Holy of Holies, separated by a large curtain. All over the temple precinct in Jesus' day, there were signs posted in three languages so that nobody would miss it, that if you go beyond this point and you are not acceptable, you will be killed. Because in God's temple, you had to be at a certain level of holiness to go further. Women could go so far, men could go so far, priests could go so far, Gentiles could hardly go any, anywhere in the temple comparatively. But then one, one day a year called Yom Kippur, the high priest who was the holiest person supposedly in all of Israel, he would go behind the curtain, and the Bible says, and he would offer up a sacrifice on the mercy seat. And the blood of the animal would give forgiveness for God's people for another year. But see, all of the walls, all of the signs, the curtain that hung there, all reminded God's people that because of our sin, see, we are separated. We are distant. You can't get close. Only this close. This is as close as you can get. And only one time a year can one man go in there. See, you can't get close on your own. But see, Here's what the psalmist says. I'm crying for God to help and do something. And see, when Jesus is forsaking, God is doing something. He's spanning the distance, not by your blood or the blood of an animal, but by the blood of his son. Hebrews says it this way in chapter 9, in verses 11 through 14. It says, by his own blood, as a high priest of good things to come through the greater and more perfect tent, that he has come into this creation. It says, by his own blood, he has offered once and for all the final sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. You know what that means? No more curtains, no more walls, no more signs. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you can say that I am not, never, ever forsaken. Psalm 22 has this pattern to it. It goes back and forth, verses 1 and 2 to verse 3. I am this, God, you are that, Jesus says. I am forsaken, see, but you are holy. I am a worm, verses 6 through 8, but God, you are good and you are a good God. He says in verse 14, I am poured out like water, verse 21, but God, you are my help. And back and forth, this pattern goes, God, you're this, I'm this. God, you're way up here, I'm down here. But here's the catch. Jesus really, truthfully, wasn't any of those things. He wasn't a worm. He wasn't a sinner. He, wasn't, he should have never had to say any of those things. Why? Why does he do it? He does it for you and I. See, he totally identifies with what it means to be distant from God. For God to take your sin and mine, he took our forsakenness. Can I say it? He took our wormness. And so the songwriter of old says, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? We don't like worm theology much in our day but we need it. See, he became a worm, a worm that we were. He did that for us because he took our sin. See, and here's the thing. He didn't deserve any of that. He wasn't a worm. He deserved to be worshipped. He, he lived the life we should have lived but never did, and he died the death that we should have died, and he chose to take it all 
so that we could be never forsaken. If you've ever read Moby Dick, it's a classic. Captain Ahab is fighting Moby Dick, and he's actually going to go down to his watery grave, and in his last breaths, he yells at Moby Dick this statement, from hell's heart I stab at thee. I mean, he's going down, and he's going to give it everything he has. But he goes down and is lost. The only thing, truthfully, was, it really wasn't literal because he wasn't in hell's heart. But Jesus was. See, in and from hell's heart, taking our sin, here's what Jesus says, from hell's heart, as he calls out to you and me, I still love you. The psalm begins with Jesus crying out, because it's all about him, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why don't you hear me? And God had not answered. He wasn't answering at the beginning of the psalm because Jesus was taking our sin. God did not hear that cry. But by the end of the psalm, it says this in verse 24, he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard him when he cried to him. See, he said, I don't look at you, Jesus. You're forsaken. You're carrying the weight of humanity's sin. But by the end of it, he says, now I hear you. See, he goes from being punished for our sins to be praised for our Savior. See, here's what the psalmist is saying. The whole world now, the whole world can get close to God. And that's why the psalm in the last four verses of Psalm 22, 27 through 31, there are four little alls mentioned. All the ends of the earth shall turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship him. All the prosperous of the earth shall worship. And it says, all those shall bow the knee, even those who are bowed down to the dust. Do you see what he's saying? Because Jesus took our forsakenness, because he put his blood on the mercy seat, before he became a worm. He knows all of our forsakenness. He took our sin. And you know what it means? That you don't have to be a high priest to get behind the Holy of Holies and the curtain anymore. Anybody, anybody can come to Jesus. You know what that means? Black or white, you can be forgiven. Rich or poor, you don't have to be forsaken. It doesn't matter your culture, your background, your language group. It doesn't matter whether you're righteous you think you are or you're completely unrighteous, whether you're religious or you're not religious, whether you're atheistic or some way you believe in a God, here's what he says. Every tongue, tribe, people, nation, it doesn't matter who you are, where you are. See, here's the reality of the death and resurrection of Christ. You never have to be forsaken. Never. And if you're a Christian this morning, can I say... You are not forsaken, nor will you ever be. It is the greatest truth that you need to hear in your suffering. Jesus knows all about your suffering, and he's done something about it. And he says this, I will never leave you in your suffering. It's the greatest message any Christian could know when they are going through difficult times. If you are here this morning and you have not professed Christ as your Savior, and you are still without him, can I tell you, it is also the greatest truth that you need to hear. And Jesus says, you don't have to be forsaken because I was forsaken for you, see. Moses says, or God said to Moses in Deuteronomy 31, twice, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Joshua going into Canaan in verse 5 of chapter 1, like I was with Moses, I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He said it to Samuel. He said it to Solomon. And he says that in Hebrews 13, 5, for the Bible says, Hebrews says, I will never leave you 
nor forsake you. You know why all those writers in Scripture can say that wonderful promise? Because Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, he left Jesus and forsook him because he paid for our sins. We sing a chorus, I am forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted, you were condemned. I'm alive and well, your spirit is within me. Why? Because you died and rose again. Listen, don't leave here today forsaken. Jesus took your forsakenness. He took your farness, and he wants to bring you near today. Believe that his blood was shed for you. That's why he died and rose again, so that you could be forgiven and never forsaken. Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, I would like to pray first for Christians this morning. Would there be some believers here who have already put their faith and trust in Jesus and say, Pastor Walker, I know that Jesus was forsaken and by his blood I'm forgiven, but I'll have to tell you, I'm asking some why questions of my own recently. I'm wondering where he is. I, I'm, I'm crying out, help me. But I don't see him doing things that I want him to do. Can I tell you this morning, can you start with this? He's already done the greatest thing that you'll ever need. He shed his blood for your sins. Can we argue from the greater to the lesser for just a moment? That is your greatest problem, and everything else, as big as it seems, doesn't compare. And if Jesus died for your sins, he can handle any problem that you face. Trust him. That's what the psalmist did. Trust him. Praise him. Worship him. If you're a Christian this morning, ask him some why questions of your own. Believe this. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. you. Say, Pastor Walker, I need to know that and to live that out by faith. Would you pray for me? Here's my hand. Would you just slip it up and I'll do that in a moment when we close. Thank you. Thank you. Number of hands. Yes, thank you. Balcony as well. Thank you. If you're here this morning, and I'm not talking cultural Christian based on some denominational affiliation, but I'm saying you're a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And, and that's not you. You'd have to say, Pastor Walker, I, I, I'm at times I'm religious, but let me tell you this. I don't have a personal relationship with God by faith. I'm not sure what would happen if I died in my eternity. I, I don't know him as my Lord and Savior. Listen, he came for you. He took your forsakenness. Black, white, rich, poor, doesn't matter where you are or who you are. You don't have to be forsaken. You can know forgiveness of sins. You can have a new life. You can surrender to him and live out your life to worship him and submit to him and serve him every day of your life. Would there be anyone this morning who would say, Pastor Walker, I need him. I don't want to be forsaken. I need the forgiveness that comes through his cross, death, and resurrection. Please pray for me that I would trust Christ. Anyone at all? Just lift your hand up real quick and put it right back down. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Anyone else? 
Father, I pray for those Christians who raise their hand and asking why questions of their own. May the exhortation from Mark's gospel and the words of Jesus from Psalm 22 and what he has done for them give them great confidence that they can face anything with him because he'll never leave them or forsake them. I pray for those few that raised their hand this morning indicating that they don't know they don't know you they don't know the joy and the peace of what it means to never be forsaken father may they come to life may they come to repentance may they come to a surrender of their whole life to your glory do that in their hearts as only you can by the working of your spirit we ask for christ's sake amen